your farm and your future matter to us. Welcome to Dairy Stream, a podcast focusing on opportunities and challenges impacting the future of dairy. This podcast is brought to you by the Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative, sister organizations fighting for sensible dairy policy in Wisconsin and Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Joanna Guza. If you're listening to this, then you are obviously thinking about the future of farming and the future of our food. Well, you've come to the right place. We are focusing on the Farmer of the Future 2.0, which is a new study from Aimpoint Research, including psychographics, tangibles and intangible items, key drivers of change, and economic uncertainties for the future of agriculture. You may have already gotten a taste of this at the 2024 Dairy Strong Conference in January. I am joined with Scott Kane. He's the president of Aimpoint Research to dive deeper into the Farmer of the Future 2.0. In this first part, we will talk about the who and the what with the Farmer of the Future. And then in part two, we will cover the challenges and some of those future predictions. Well, Scott, if you could take us back to 2018 when your team released the Farmer of the Future, what were some of the main findings then and why now the 2.0? Joanna, I'd have to even step back farther than 2018 because the reason we did this in 2018 is that we felt like there was a general misunderstanding of the farming community. What we felt were men and women who were familiar and even not familiar were generalizing. And we also felt like understanding the impacts tended to be oversimplified. People tended to say everybody does this or everybody thinks this. And of course, that's not the case. And so what we wanted to do for our own value was understand more deeply what's happening in agriculture today, but doing it at the farm gate. So in 2018, we endeavored to do what we found out later was a landmark study, understanding nationally what things do people make decisions on, why they make those decisions, and moreover, how those decisions might inform us as the participant in that conversation, a better opportunity to meet farmers or ranchers where they are. So in 2018, we set out to do that, uh, came back with our very first segmentation, and that's led us down the path for the last six years to try to understand even more deeply how people make decisions. And when you say farm gate, can you explain what that means to our audience? Yeah, for sure. So I think an awful lot of folks don't know where the farm begins and ends. And when I talk about Farmgate, what I'm really talking about is if we were walking up to speak to you, the farmer, at the door of your operation, we may not see all the way into it, but we can see what it is. So for us, the Farmgate is a euphemism for speaking to someone where they are in their operational environment and understanding how they are doing what they're doing at the Farmgate. So it sounds like 2.0, it deals with a lot of those psychographics, which we will jump into in just a little bit, which I'm excited to hear more about. But let's first talk about the tangible and intangible. What are some of those tangible items farmers of the future will be navigating? Sure, which is jumping to the so what about this. And I love that we're jumping to the so what. Let's talk about those two words, tangible and intangible. I think all of us recognize that the thing that's most close to us, whether it's the children that we have or the decision on what we're going to make for dinner, It's tangible. It's what we know. It's what we're comfortable with. What we've found is that when we ask people about things that are farther out into the future, it becomes less material and more out there. And sometimes people don't want to embrace those things because they're either ambiguous or I don't know how it affects me. Or more importantly, I don't want to really think about how it affects me. So the difference between tangible and intangible, tangible today is the cost of energy or the cost of fuel. It's tangible. I see it every single day 
on my farm, frankly, as us driving around, we see it as well. What's intangible to us is how will changes in, say, technology impact me? And I'm hearing these words that are like AI or this is precision ag. I don't need to know about that. It's not going to affect me. And so therefore it is intangible. In the second farm of the future, which was a repeat of the first, in so much as we asked many of the same questions, we saw what had happened over the past five years, and we wanted to ask more clearly, what do you understand is affecting you today? And how do you feel about those things that are farther out? And what we quickly learned is that some people are very good at putting into position what intangible means to them and how they'll accommodate it when it becomes tangible. Others don't want to deal with it until it is clear and present at their farm gate impacting. That's what we're talking about when we talk about intangible versus tangible. And one thing I think I need to clarify, we have so many generations that are on the farm, and I know we'll dive into that a little bit more And the last question before we go into this break, but what generation were you talking to? I mean, I think about my dad and my brother both farming, two mm -hmm. different perspectives there when it comes to these tangible and intangible items. Sure. So in the first one, we limited ourselves to men and women who were 55 years and younger. And so if you were over 18 and had principal operations or you were a decision maker on it, you were allowed to be part of that study. We capped it at 55 because what we originally wanted to do is say, what will the world look like in 20 or 30 years? And as much as we want every man and woman who's 56 right now to be farming 20 years from now, we really did want to focus on those men and women who are in the prime of their activity, who are starting, not those that are already well established. We took that governor off for the second one, not because it wasn't still important, but because, and I've had these conversations, I mentioned this in our speech, I've spoken to 80 and 90 year old men and women who are the most innovative, mm -hmm. the most creative, the most engaging, the most business oriented men and women that are in farming, frankly, would go toe to toe with anybody in business. To say that the age governs that is ridiculous, it doesn't. And so what we really wanted to do is make sure that we spoke to all of the generations, not only because an 80 year old, just like an 18 year old can be innovative, but how a person on an operation who is the grandfather talks to the grandson is different. And knowing both of them better helps everybody that's engaging farms actually understand that just because someone did doesn't mean their progeny does. Let's talk about psychographics now. What mm -hmm. are some of the psychographics that you guys looked at with farmers? And if you could explain what psychographics are. Psychographics is principally how people make decisions about topics. Demographics is, of course, about a location. I live in Iowa, that's my demographics. Or I'm 18 years old, that's my demographics. I'm a male, that's demographics. When we talk about psychographics, it's things like decision-making style, whether you choose to make decisions quickly or not, whether others view you as innovative or not. When you are thinking about things that are unknown to you, how do you embrace those? So this is about how people think and act, respond and understand things, not who they are as demonstrated by where they live or how old they are or what it means to be raising sheep or cattle or row crops. Does that make sense? That does make sense. So what are some of those psychographics then when it comes to the farmer of the future 2.0? Sure. And this is going to, we're going to talk about a spectrum here. And so I want to start out with segmentation. Some people view segmentation as putting people in restrictive buckets, and this is not the case. What we're talking about is a spectrum of behavior, and people tend to exhibit certain characteristics. One of those characteristics is how I make decisions. 
I myself fall into a category that says I like to collaborate actively to make a decision. In other words, I'm going to be talking to you. I may have an idea as to what my decision is, but I really do want to engage you in a conversation about that. And two of the segments that we are going to talk about in a second are demonstrate a propensity to do just that. My decision making is an open decision making style. That's one of the psychographics. The second is I want to and will engage in these conversations before I decide what my answers are. There are other men and women who are closed and that closed decision making doesn't mean they don't take the information in. It just means what they're looking for is input, but I'm going to be the decider. I'm not going to be public about my decision making practices. I'm not even going to be public about how I'm making my decisions. And the important thing for us is that all of these exist on a spectrum. And for us, knowing where someone lands helps us engage them and meet them where they are. If you're a collaborative type, I know when you respond back with a question, what you're asking me for is input. If you're not a collaborative type, when you ask me a question, I'm supposed to give you an answer and I should be okay with that. That's one of the answer on psychographics. And do the farmer of the future, does it lean more one way or the other? The answer is yes. And the goal is not to put people into specific places as one is good or one is bad. And we want to be very clear that both in the first segmentation and the second one, what we were looking for is attributes that we can recognize. Now, yes, about 40% of the farming population that we spoke to in the second one fall into the category of actively collaborating. Another 40% fall into the category of I'm the decider and I'm not going to be open about that decision making. That doesn't mean I don't talk to my spouse. It doesn't mean that I don't talk to my lawyer. It just means publicly I'm not going to be collaborative. And about 20% are a mix between those two. As an example, another example is how willing am I to consider innovation as part of my business practice? There's about 30% of the farmer population who wants to be on the leading edge, not the bleeding edge, of technology. There's another 30% who said, by God, what was good enough for my grandfather is good enough for me. I don't need any of that fancy stuff. And other people fall into the center of that. So again, understanding where people are also for the businesses that are supporting our farmers and ranchers helps you understand why they're responding the way they are when you're offering them the counsel or the suggestions or the technology or seeing inhibitors coming down the, the road. So, Scott, you've already addressed this audience segmentation. Is there anything else you wanted to add on that that you want our audience to know? It's really important to understand that this is meant to help us understand why agriculture in general is so important to us. And when I say us, I mean consumers us, I mean Americans us, and I mean us in the world. We really do believe that agriculture has a voice and that voice needs to be heard. It's not homogenous but it is almost always unified behind this is a national security issue. We need to be doing these things to sustain and grow agriculture, not just because we're feeding people, not just because we're supporting rural America, but because this is foundational to how well we operate as a country. But those voices that are mission oriented might all say I'm mission oriented, but that mission is different. Our psychographics help us understand that if someone says I'm mission oriented, you have to ask the next question, which is, what does that mean to you? And when someone says, this is what it means to me, lean into that. That's one of the things that we want to make sure people understand, both on the receiving side of this and on the using side, which is people are not all the same. They're not homogenous. And we need to be able to support all of them because all of them contribute to this national success. Right. And I know we're going to jump into some of those more challenges in the second part. 
But hearing you say that we have these farmers that are still kind of on the far, you know, this spectrum mm-hmm. doing different things differently. That's a it seems like it's in our favor when it comes to national security because we're not all headed in the right direction. Is that accurate to say? There's a couple of different things I'll, I'll extract from that. The answer is yes, it is accurate to say that. I think it's also accurate to understand that just because some are willing to change doesn't mean that those are who are not willing to change are not going to be part of the system. What we are going to suggest is that at some point, those who are unwilling to change today for things that are in fact happening in the marketplace are going to find that the marketplace has moved. And as a consequence, they may not be as relevant. It doesn't mean that continuing to have the practice that you have is bad. It just means that if consumers, as in, for example, wanted a certain way, at some point, that's going to be expressed in the market. And if you're not meeting the market's demands, you're either going to have to find your market, which is not easy unless you do that as an active part of your business. And if it's not part of your active business, you're going to find yourself confused as to why what you've always done doesn't seem to be doing as well as it did in the past. So for us, again, it is yes to your question, but moreover about saying, if you're not considering it now, maybe we can give you enough evidence to say you probably ought to for the purposes of sustainability of your operation, not sustainability environmentally, for the fact that you continue to have that market that you've always had a part of. We want you to continue to be part of that. Last question as we wrap up this first part of Dairy Stream. You, you know this, farms are generational. How can a farm be better prepare themselves when they are working with three different generations? Sure. So I'm going to talk to you both in the farm and out of the farm. We spend a lot of time on farm, one, because it's really great to get out and see what people are doing, two, because the, every farmer is running a complex business. And I think what's lost on a lot of Americans outside of farming is just how not just hard, but how complex it is to do what we do for a living. Now, given that, we also have to recognize that the grandson and the father and the grandmother are not going to agree on everything. And so speaking to the generations, I think the most important thing is to understand each person's perspective and how that could positively impact the organization. Grandmother is going to have good opinions and she's going to have certain things that she will say, this is a non-negotiable. And the grandson should be able to say, but grandmother, what I learned when I did this was that this is an alternative and it's going to do this to raise our revenue. And what the grandmother needs to be willing to accept is that it's not all about the practice. In some cases, it is about the business. We have to have those open conversations. As those working from the outside in, We need to make sure that when we're engaging the farm and it's multi-generational, which most are, who you talk to matters. And assuming that you know who the decider is, is also false. What we need to know is we need to make sure we're talking to the person who's sitting in that decision seat. And it may be the grandson or it may be the grandmother. And we have to understand that how they make their decisions is different. So just like we're asking for the generations to accept and understand that the way I'm making my decision puts this first, from the outside in, you also have to understand that what moves me and motivates me to do what I'm doing on the farm isn't going to be consistent generation to generation. It might be, but you can't assume that's going to be the case. Scott Kane has been our guest, and next we will cover geopolitical uncertainties, key drivers and change in agriculture, future predictions. But first, let's hear from our Dairy Stream sponsor. Pivot Bio is a leading sustainable agriculture company that delivers patented crop nutrition technologies to farmers. Pivot Bio's products are a breakthrough innovation, harnessing the power of microbes to deliver a steady supply of nitrogen to plants. 
an extensive study conducted in collaboration with more than 30 dairy producers during the 2022 and 2023 growing seasons demonstrated that replacing up to 40 pounds per acre of synthetic nitrogen with Pivot Bio Proven 40 significantly improved silage tonnage while maintaining quality. Pivot Bio has been recognized twice by Time Magazine on its annual list of best inventions. For more information, visit pivotbio.com. Dairy Stream is brought to you by the Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative. In the second part, we will focus on challenges and the future predictions for the farmer of the future. Well, Scott, what geopolitical or economic uncertainties did the research find or how can a farm be better prepared? So starting with better prepared, I think it comes down to a level of awareness and understanding that that which happens on our farm is not consistent even with our neighbor, much less the county over, much less the state over, much less globally. And so for part of what we would say in terms of uncertainty is we have to recognize that that which is happening in, say, Ukraine isn't just a distant country that in of itself, tragedy or not, is only affecting that. It does have cascading impacts from where inputs are coming from, from politics that are occurring that cause us to actually have or not have the market we need or the inputs we need. So for us, the uncertainties that were revealed in the second conversation was that that which had begun to take place over the last five years really has taken hold. And that has to do with our supply chain has been stressed and that stress is causing different reactions to happen depending on commodity, but also depending on our markets. And that's not just what's happening regionally, although we think we can address it regionally. It also means that the present need of consumers is still and will continue to be a pressing issue across the agri-food value chain, which means we've got to recognize that even though we may view them as fickle and they have changing opinions as to what is or isn't important, and they may not understand it completely, we have to understand what that looks like in the marketplace. And that's not just domestic, that's global as well. As we feed the world, how we produce, say, the milk that we produce that's making its way to, say, Africa, the needs of the African consumer matters. And so we need to be aware of those things. At the bottom line, what we saw happening five years ago and what we're seeing today are similar and they're trending. But what's most important right now is the conversation. And there are five things that we think are, are defining that conversation. Data, who owns it and how you trace it is going to become and is important, but it will become increasingly important. How we deliver what we deliver is more about the quality than the quantity. And this is really important is that what we're beginning to see is that as men and women are looking at the health of the American food system, it's not just our ability to produce the quantity, it's also becoming the quality of what we're delivering, the nutritional value, the caloric value, not just the quantity, when it's talking about human or animal consumption, not biofuel or others. We also think that there's more and more attention, whether in this administration or others, to environmental pressures of all sorts. And the last is that um, it's not just a chemically driven society that we live in. They have done very good things to help us sustain and grow our agricultural capabilities. Biologics are part of that equation, are going to become even more part of that conversation. So between those five that I went over very quickly, we think those are the uncertainties and the geopolitical activities that really need to be paid attention to at the farm gate. And which do you think is going to have the biggest impact on agriculture? <laughs> so my, my answer to you, and it's a biased answer, is it has to do with data. And, and when I say data, I really do believe that our decision making that says what I do on my farm is mine 
and not yours. You should just trust that I'm going to do that is going to be a challenge that is tangible. And the reason I say that is biotechnology, depending on what you do, may be intangible. Food is health may be intangible. Precision ag may be intangible. What's happening in Ukraine may be intangible to you. But how we do what we do and people's demands to understand that requires data. And that data is going to be shared and used in multiple ways. We as a community are going to have to be open to the fact that that which was created on our farm is needed by others to help us do what we're doing. It's going to feel like they're asking for more than they should. In most cases, they're not asking it to be onerous, they're asking it to be helpful. And I think about that in the lending environment, I think about that in the input environment, I think that in the cooperative environment, I think that in the federal and state regulations. This is not to make your job harder. And this is the hardest thing for us when we talk about tangible. The questions that are being asked are not trying to make it harder for you to do your job. They're trying to make it so that the system works better. And until we understand that's why these questions are being asked, in my mind, data, and then traceability are probably the most significant. I am so optimistic when it comes to data and tra- you know having that traceability. Do you think, though, that could have an issue with national security, some of the items you brought up, that even though we're going to be uh, tracking and doing all these things, they're really great. We just had uh, Kip Tom, former ambassador, on Dairy Stream, and he said, mm-hmm. use with caution, right? We want to make sure that we're utilizing these tools because they are going to help farms but we don't want to use them as a regulation because this one farm's mm-hmm. utilizing this technology and then the other farm that's not, but the person that's using it and something goes wrong or it malfunctions, they might get run mm-hmm. out of business because of it. And I mean, that's an extreme sure. example, but your thoughts. Two thoughts. First is we're, we're big fans of Kip. Kip and our organization have lots of conversations and I believe that he is largely correct in the statement that we have to understand what we mean when we say data and we have to understand what the downstream impact. We don't want to have to deal with the fact that cybersecurity is something that has come to the farm gate, but it really has. And what you're talking about is there are going to be nefarious actors, both domestic and international, who are going to look for whatever they can to exploit vulnerabilities. Now, that may be a vulnerability that affects my farm, or it may be a vulnerability that collectively affects national security. What we have to be is prepared enough to make sure we're doing the right things to prevent that. We can't absolutely prevent it, but we also have to be aware that there is upside to being more public with our data, and we have to weigh the value of that and what's gained from that aggregation against the protectedness that leads us to those vulnerabilities. So where I I'm measured in my response, which is to say the men and women I know right now who are willing to share just about everything that's happening on their farm are gaining benefit in the market because the market players who want that information are using it to better serve them. And so these men and women are getting competitive advantages right now. Is it always going to be that way? No, we have to be cautious, but we shouldn't just distrust it at the onset. We have to know that most people are doing it for the right reasons. And before we jump into future predictions, one more question I have for you, Scott. So you named those five key drivers. You mentioned the mm-hmm. biggest impact ones. What if we were to look at it as a timeline? So within the next five years, I say 10, but I know mm-hmm. things could change a lot. Which ones do you think we're going to see in that time frame first? Is data and traceability going to be kind of that first item that that farmer of the future is going to be experiencing? Is it precision technology? If we were to look at it as a timeline perspective. Yeah, so so part, part of this is, of course, we're already experiencing data. We're already experiencing to some degree precision ag. I think I think the one that is more present that isn't necessarily fully formed, and it's going to depend on what happens over the next year and then four years, is what does it mean for us to embrace 
sustainability or environmental activity in the context of American farming. And I'm not judging or suggesting one way or the other. The one that I think is most likely a driver of challenges is going to be how we interpret what's being presented and how we respond to what's being presented by environmental pressures. And I'm kind of cheating because look, at the end of the day, environmental pressures touch on all of those. If you're measuring something, that's data. And it could be something we're measuring for the purposes of environmental pressures. If we're measuring something, it might be for the purposes of food as health. And that's something that people are saying, I only want it this way, delivered this way. So I'm going to cheat just a little bit and say, I think that how we view and receive what we view as environmental pressures is going to be the defining characteristic in the short term that really does dominate the conversation. And we're seeing this at the national level. Um, we're seeing this in terms of water quality. We're seeing this in terms of an awful lot of things that are happening both in the current administration and whatever the future administration is. It'll likely be a similar conversation. Scott, I lied because now you're just sparking some more questions. So one more before we get into the predictions. For sure. When we look at these five key drivers, it's all centered around a lot of relationships. Who's responsible for sharing about this? You know, just I feel like with social media and we talk about trends and they can change within a year, they can change within a week mm -hmm. when something happens. Who's responsible mm -hmm. for like sharing the, the accurate information? Is it the farmer? Is it the brand's? Is it the grocery oh. store when we look up the supply chain? And I agree with mm -hmm. you on all these items, but we want to make sure that the proper message is being told. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know where you were going with that question. I was going to answer it differently until you finished the question. Uh, military background for most, most of my officers and I, uh, we believe in responsibility and we, we believe in extreme ownership, which is just to say, if I'm part of the question, I should be part of the solution. I should own what I need to own. And I'm going to default to that answer, which is to say, Everybody has a responsibility to play their role and to understand how the left and right of that transaction is or isn't participating in that fair conversation. I do not think there is a single entity that owns that responsibility. What I do think, and what I thought you were going is, I think we need to have a larger conversation about what this means and doesn't mean, back to the tangible versus intangible. When many of us hear a topic, we come from where we stand and say, this is what that topic means. And it doesn't always mean that. One of the things we spend a lot of time as an organization doing is convening groups of men and women who are across the industry to do things like wargaming. And we've done this annually for the past five years. And the goal isn't just to solve certain problems. It's also to have everybody talk to each other. So the answer I would tell you is that I think we own responsibility in terms of communicating this message so that it becomes more and more part of the conversation. Kip needs to be doing what he's doing at his level from his bully pulpit. We all need to be doing what we can. No one individually owns the responsibility, but all of us own are part of that responsibility. And I think it means we've got to open our aperture enough to say, I think what you said was this, I view it this way, is that what you're saying? Right, I agree. And it's, I think too, our consumer needs to hear from the source. You wouldn't go talk to your hairstylist about your 401k, right? You'd go talk to no, a financial no. advisor. If you want to learn about food, talk to a farmer. This is true. And, and and that conversation is happening. I mean, it was interesting. We did a study where it seemed like a majority, and I do mean a majority of Americans when asked, said, oh, no, no, I've been on a farm. And the answer is, it's not A, it's not possible. B, not probable. What it probably means is that sometime around Thanksgiving or Halloween, they did something that was agritourism. Not to take that away from, from consumers. We do need to have a conversation with consumers. But like most people, 
We can't convince someone with facts. That's something that they feel. What we have to start doing is leaning into the emotional side of what food means for us. And food does mean health, which is why we think food is health is important. If we can center the conversation on why we're growing food, national security, and why it's important to have healthy food, nearly everybody can get behind that. And all those other things we were talking about, those key drivers, they fall into place behind that. That's our advocacy. Couple more questions as we wrap up the second part. What future predictions do you have based on the research to better understand farmers and ranchers? So we know that the farming universe, that is the men and women who are producing food, is contracting. It's been contracting for years. And when I say contracting, I specifically avoid the word consolidation because I think those apply two very different things. We know that right now there are in excess of 2 million men and women who are seen as in farming operations. Some of them are very small, some of them are very large. What we also know is the number of operations that are producing the majority of food is also decreasing. This is the last ag census. It was less than 100,000. At one point it was 112,000. That's going to continue to happen for a myriad of reasons. So to answer your question, I think what we have to understand is that contraction by itself does not mean bad things. It doesn't mean that we're necessarily losing the mom and pop operations. What it does mean is that we are in an industry that is moving towards efficiency. We're in an industry that is seeking to produce the best quality product it can and still produce enough revenue in that chain. We have to have a defensible position to make sure that the farmer still has a part of that profitability. And we think operations really need to be focused. Yes, it's a lifestyle. Yes, there are practices in it. It is also a business. And I mentioned that earlier. We have to make sure that what we're doing to remain viable into the future is that we are part of that business decision making. We understand what it means to, to operate a profitable business. And we're continuing to be part of that value chain. I feel like this is the million dollar question that everyone wants to hear. How can mm -hmm. a farmer be a farmer of the future? So let's let's divide that question into two parts. The first is, it uh, depends on what you define the future as. And so I'll start with those men and women who are at the end of their agricultural career, but have not yet transitioned. And I mean transition in terms of either generational transition or seeing that someone else is going to become a steward of their operation. I think we need to spend time making sure that that transition, that succession is done deliberately, intentionally, willfully, and towards the sustainment of that operation. Said differently, to be a farmer of the future needs to understand that it is not just about your current operation, but about making sure that you've set it up for success into the future. So you can be a farmer of the future today, even if that means you're exiting it in a year because you're setting the next practice up for success. And, and there's lots of men and women who will say, I'm right now acquiring enough herd or enough acreage or enough this because I've got two sons and a daughter and all of them wanna be part of the business. And I know that one operation can't sustain three families. We need to be big enough that all three families can have the lifestyle that we've had. That's deliberate, that's intentional, that's willful. In my mind, being a farmer of the future is looking towards what you need and want to be and achieving that through your action. Now, that's the first part. The second is farmer of the future does mean that you are a part of the economy. And being a part of the economy doesn't mean you have to have a certain practice. It does mean that you have to understand how the economy works and to work within it because we're gonna have constraints on the cost of inputs and we're gonna have constraints in terms of the outputs and what commodity prices are. To work within that system, to be a farmer of the future means to understand the downflow and the upflow and how you can run a profitable operation. And this is common language. I'm not telling you anything you didn't know, but a farmer of the future is gonna look at that and say, if I'm not doing it now, 
working harder is not going to make that work. Working different, figuring out what others are doing to get there and to be part of that change is a necessity. So I'm going to leave you with anything. What we're doing today is good. It won't be good enough tomorrow. We need to be open enough to what tomorrow is going to require of us, that we're willing to meet it as far as we're willing to meet it, so that we are continuing to be that successful operation into the future. That's what a farmer of the future really needs to be doing. Well, Scott, thank you for filling our plate with knowledge and insight on the farmer of the future. DBA and Edge work hard to keep you connected to topics that impact your future, and we appreciate you for listening and hope you tune in again. I'm your host, Joanna Guza, for Dairy Stream. The Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative would like to thank you for listening to Dairy Stream. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe and rate Dairy Stream. We value your feedback, and if there's something you'd like to hear, email us at podcast at dairyforward.com.